0: Welcome to Wisdom from the Edge. I am your host, Lisa Brazelton, co-founder of Sage Prosperity Partners. I have over 24 years of executive leadership and entrepreneurial experience. I'm a six-time business executive in the facility management, executive coaching and training and marketing industries. I believe in the field of human potential and I'm dedicated to helping leaders understand their deeper purpose by unlocking the gifts hidden in the human heart. As co-founder of Sage Prosperity Partners, I'm committed to exposing the cacophony of business disillusionment and profit-first mentality, replacing it with deep spiritual expression and a purpose-driven mindset to give business sustainability. Today, we're going to talk about generational leadership, a billion-dollar problem for most organizations. There is a huge gap in learning from a generational perspective. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be focused on how generational leadership is really an issue and how we can provide information and solutions for you as a listener. I'd like to introduce Robert T. Foley or Bob Foley, co-founder of Sage Prosperity Partners. Bob has an amazing career background filled with an unusual broad horizon of knowledge. Bob brings a rich and diverse experience to Sage. He began his career in government service and then moved into the executive search, executive coaching, workforce development, labor relation, and finally financial services. Bob then capped off his background with a multi-million dollar revenue assignment as chief executive officer in the hotel franchise, national association and publishing businesses. As co-founder of Sage Prosperity Partners, Bob is committed to providing an oasis of wisdom in a turbulent sea of change. Bob, welcome.
1: I've been doing this leadership training for about almost 4 years. Mhm. Leadership is such a broad term. Everybody just goes, yeah, 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 leadership. I was able to hook up with a uh, content provider out of Waco, Texas, mm-hmm. and they have a whole leadership series. It's about 26 different courses. I've got it on a uh, license agreement, so I can, I can do anything I want with it, basically. Mm-hmm. So I've done a number of LinkedIn posts. I did a blog series of six, I think it was, back about a year ago. I've probably done, well, I know I've done hundreds of mastermind groups it's usually one-off things. You can go on LinkedIn, and LinkedIn will tell you that out of the eighteen thousand seven hundred and ninety five companies that have more than a hundred employees in the United States, that's the big corporate group out there. only twenty seven percent have a leadership curriculum that they use seventy seven percent say that they are looking for more content and more curriculum, not of the people that are in, but overall. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. As I have done this stuff, what I found was I had a room full of 15 people, all generationally diverse. They all basically learn differently. And all of us educational, if you will, consultants all teach the same way. Almost, almost 80% it's still stand up as early as uh, the mid-90s, I commissioned research uh, because I was the president of an educational institute that showed that stand-up training was the least effective of all delivery methods.
0: Now, was that among every demographic?
1: That was among not only every demographic, but every ethnicity. In fact, there were 16 different ethnic groups within the sample, and it was from all over the United States, and it was all in the hotel business because that's what the Educational Institute was. So you're getting a great cross section of people there because it was people in management, it was people on the line. So you're getting immigrants, you're getting very well healed, very well educated Cornell school people down to second grade at best. And basically, what the survey came out with and said was that people remember 10% of what they hear from a stand up trainer, they remember 25% of what they see in a video, but they'll remember almost 50% of what they engage in through some form of interactive training or education. Mm -hmm. So what I did was there, I had 56 collegiate textbooks for all these hotel schools across the world. And they were all written by professors from the various hotel schools. And I took all of that and digitized it. This is 1996, okay? Digitize the whole thing. I got a company to donate a million dollars worth of computer equipment so we could host it all and, and really had the storage capacity to be able to digitize it all. Mm-hmm. And then we also had the largest archive of instructional video for the hotel business.
0: Did this correlate to the text?
1: Well, no, but that's what I did. I started to introduce a website with each textbook that you could go to for two and three minute video clips. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, a lot of my um, competitors at that time, the largest competitor was Wiley and then Pearson, of course. Mm-hmm. Two years after we did all that, so do they. Mm-hmm. But we still had the largest archive mm-hmm. and the broadest. So I did all that. And then I went over on the um, operations side or, or the hotel side and digitized all the video so we could stream it. Mm-hmm. Got a T1 line. Okay. Mm -hmm. there were only five of us with T1 lines on uh, the eastern side of the Mississippi, and we had one. So we could stream like there was no tomorrow. Wow. The only problem was on the accepting side, they just did not have the equipment to be able to, uh, well, to be able to accept the stream for it to be in real time. It was back in the old days where everything was very creaky and uh, dial up. uh, Well, just about, you know, we were a little past dial up but not much. I mean, the bandwidth was tiny. So we never got the stuff through the pipe.
0: Right. You don't have the coverage.
1: We were 10 years too early. Yes. That's what the problem was. So the next guy came in who was a college dean, and he told people to put all that stuff in the closet because it's not necessary. So it sat in the closet for 10 years. And then uh, 2007, the next guy that came after that guy found the stuff and <laughs> took it out and just plugged it in, and they did about $8 million that year in sales uh, from, from just that product alone. Wow. Uh, so
0: why did his predecessor think it was worthless?
1: Because he was a college dean, you know? He was a textbook guy. Yeah. You know, the way it works in the collegiate world is usually when you author a book, you don't update it for at least seven years. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is because your market, who's the college professors, they don't want to change their lectures that often. Sure. And of course, the big downside for a collegiate publisher is you get 100% profit in year one, you get 50% in year two, and in years three and four, it dwindles down to Good 10 percent because of the secondhand book market. Yes, so I was always fighting with, every, with all, all the professors because I wanted them to update at least every three years. You know mm-hmm. They didn't agree with that because they felt that we were raping their students by charging 50, 60, 70 dollars a textbook, and of course, the secondhand book market was selling them for 10, so we got very little support from that marketplace. so But was it not
0: apparent that the world was changing and the materials were becoming obsolete?
1: I mean, not in the late 90s, uh-huh. and academia is the last to change anything. What was happening was the 28-year-old, 30-year-old PhDs who were in there as really instructors, they were starting to make that change. And what they were doing was they were going out and finding articles, and they would hand out an article each class and tell their students to read the article, and we'll discuss it at the next class. I see. And they, just, they, were, they were just doing away with textbooks, period. They felt that that was the best way to uh, deliver education because it was contemporary, you know? Right. And, of course, if you remember, too, right after that is when the whole Internet thing exploded and then crashed. So the academic side of things really didn't bother with any of that stuff. By the um, early 2000s, they thought that videos were cutting edge it's much different now. They've fully embraced it. And you got a lot more adjuncts now in the college world and a lot less people who are there with tenure. So the adjuncts, for the most part, are either business people or from whatever subject they're speaking on. So they really get into it. And that world is just changing so much so fast. And these colleges now that are charging mid-price $50,000 a year to attend they're pricing themselves out of a marketplace. And I think where the big change is going to occur is the millennials are very, very pissed off about what they paid for college and uh, how much they make when they get out. Right. They're not seeing the price value uh, in their education. So I think you're going to see more and more online stuff, especially if you look at the Gen Z you know, they're so much more oriented towards, well, their phones, really. And as we move forward here, I think a lot of that stuff is going to be delivered that way. And, you know, they keep shooting our kids in schools. So I think maybe even the grammar schools and high schools, I think people are going to start to homeschool their kids more and more as more and more of these educational programs are developed that can be a stream or can just be pulled down out of the cloud and shared.
0: Yes. By subscription?
1: Yeah. Here in Boston, McGraw-Hill, very smartly, started one of these WeWork operations, Mm -hmm. temporary office. Well, they've started one here in Boston, but only for people who are involved in education startups. Mm -hmm. So they have this laboratory of uh, over 200 startups that rent space from them. And then they also give them support for a price. And whether they're writing books or they're putting together software to speed up or better enhance the education experience. And I go in there often because I have a number of friends in there and it's unbelievable what's going on there. And you can just see the whole education world changing almost overnight to the point where I think a lot of these colleges are going to be flat-footed. All of them have some form of video courses now and of course, University of Phoenix. And then you know, Southern New Hampshire University just decided to embrace that 15 years ago. And they're like the number three internet university now. And it's just amazing what's uh, what's being done. So,
0: so you see online education as being the way of the future?
1: I really think so, because it's very cost effective. Mm-hmm. And once again, if it can be interactive, people are going to remember 50% of what they learned. So I remembered only 10% of what I learned. And I went through grammar school, high school, and college. And if the next generation can go through and retain 50%, I think we're a lot more ahead of the game and they can do it at a fraction of the cost. Yes. It's very interesting.
0: So that's how we are positioning Sage Prosperity Partners to direct our pitch towards businesses and not compete with educational institutions.
1: Right. When I talk to business leaders and I say, what's your number one pain point? And they say, we can't find good people. I said, well, the fact of the matter is, is that you found the best people available or you wouldn't hire them. Now what you have to do is you have to mold them and shape them into what you really want them to do. That's why you need to put in a number of development programs so that you can grow your employees as they grow. And what that will do is that will increase their desire to stay with you so you won't have turnover. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea about hire, train, and retain because of the tight labor market, which is going to change shortly, but you get constriction at 4.5%. That's full employment. When you have unemployment uh, of 4.5%, I should say. And now we're down to like 3.9. And in some places, it's under three. So there's total constriction. So everybody's screaming for people. And the fact of the matter is, their solution is internal. But we're geared to be a throwaway society. Mm -hmm. And we see more value in going out and purchasing new, as opposed to keeping, coddling, and then developing. Mm -hmm. Because that's a concept that quote-unquote costs money. And over the last two recessions, what we did was we did away with most corporate training programs because it was something that we quote-unquote didn't need for the short term. But that became then a long-term strategy because like everything else, we needed to squeeze for better productivity, more profitability, which of course is the goal of business. But the problem now is that we have invested so little in our workforce from that standpoint of intellectual development. What's happened now is that we're kind of bankrupt in that area. Mm -hmm. And the leadership of most companies, because they're baby boomers or maybe Gen X, feel that the millennials and the Gen Zs are just lazy because they must have been schooled the way we were. So they just assume that somewhere they've gone through the same kind of leadership and management development training that they went.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: That's just not the case. So we have an entire class of illiterate managers from a leadership standpoint, sitting in our companies right now. And when I do leadership training that I do, I find that it's the millennial group that number one pays the most attention. Number two, soaks it up. And number three, wants more. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very interesting to watch all this happen. So It can be done very simply and very easily, and that's why we're doing it. And then finally, after watching this over a four-year period of time, have seen how to communicate with the different generations. You have to live in their world, and you have to communicate with them in the ways that they communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. So the baby boomers, it's still stand-up training because that's the only thing they're comfortable with. Gen X would rather read it on their own. They would rather have a coach. They would rather have someone that they can go one-on-one. They really take well to mentoring. And then the millennials, they want it bite size. They want the eight to 10-minute, once-a-day video that they can download or they can go on a website or they can get and put on their phone and watch it as they're going to work or when they're at work, you know? hmm But they want the interactivity. They want to be able to get together as a group once a week, once every two weeks, and just talk about it as a group for an hour because they love that interactivity. Mm-hmm. And the Generation Z, they could care less about the interactivity. They just want it on their phone, and they want it to last two or three minutes. But keep feeding them every day, Mm -hmm. like an affirmation, you know, every single day. And they'll imbibe it. And then if you also give them an assignment on how to practice what they just affirmed, that's the kind of setting that they learn best in because they'll remember it immediately because they put it into practice immediately. And that's really, I think, what industry wants, because industry then can get a price value for the money that they're spending on it very quickly, and it returns dividends very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. We'll see if that works or not.
0: How did you discover generational learning patterns that work the best? Did you do a survey? How was the research compiled? Where did the data come from?
1: It was research that I did on my own, research that I did reading tons of stuff on the internet, but mostly it came from Gallup. It came from uh, Deloitte, uh, which has a group out of Oakland, California called Burnson, Burnson Deloitte. And they are really the cutting edge HR consultants now in the country. And then reading a lot of Forbes articles, because Forbes has set up a whole litany of people on Forbes.com that write on a number of different subjects. So, you know, I zeroed in on a lot of stuff that they were writing. And then going up to this McGraw Hill incubator up in Boston and just talking to a lot of people who are in the education space. And I was asking them from a teacher delivery standpoint, what are they using? What are they seeing as effective? Mm -hmm. So that's where I grabbed all this stuff from. And that's where basically I boiled it all down. And then, of course, what I would do when I had my um, groups uh, that I would be doing the leadership training with, I would test some things. I would throw certain concepts in and see how they work. And that's how I came up with this generational leadership strategy Mm -hmm. by generation to see what was the most effective. So I guess you could say that, no, it wasn't a Harvard or MIT study. A lot of it was trial and error but I feel very confident that I am meeting the student where they live, mm-hmm. and I'm confident that it's bringing results. We'll see over the next year as we roll this out. Three or four years, we'll have good researched information rather than anecdotal thought. Right. But it's like everything else. The world is changing quickly, and you got to jump in and you got to try things. That's what we're doing.
0: Excellent. Well, based on what we know and the information that we've compiled, I believe that we're on the right path. It's critical to focus on what our clients need and not presume we know without listening. One-size-fits-all solutions don't work.
1: That's the whole thing. You can sit and put all your thoughts and all your bias and your persuasiveness all into your body of work, but until you actually try it out on the general public or a slice of the public or whoever you're trying to appeal to, you really don't know if it works or not. And the funny thing is, one of the 12 leadership programs that we do is on communication, (laughs) and that's exactly what they tell you to do. They tell you to start with, first of all, talking to yourself, then talking to a trusted advisor, friend, whatever, then talking to a small group of people about the idea and getting their feedback, and then taking it from there and talking to a larger group for even further feedback. And by then you'll have a communication that is then crafted and pretty much a lot of the gaps have been filled. And then you release it to the public, whatever your public is. Right. But you'll even still get feedback from them. And that's when you amend it, go to your 2.0 and push it out again. Yes. It doesn't stop there. 2.0 becomes 3.0, 4, 5, 6. And if you're smart, you'll do it every six months. Right. Right. It's really what people are looking for. They're looking for new up-to-date information as, as fast as possible.
0: Right, and being sensitive to the needs of people as they evolve.
1: Exactly. What I've also learned through all of this is that I have to pay attention to what I'm teaching people because if I don't practice what I teach, then I am a preacher that doesn't believe in what they're attesting to.
0: Right. Bob, thank you so much for your insight. I completely agree we have to have integrity with what we teach and we have to follow those same rules, same paths. Integrity is really a cornerstone to what I think is closing the gap between how we appear and who we are in the world. Thank you so much for listening today. We're happy to help in any way we can and hope that you will join us again next week as we dive deeper into generational leadership. We also will be doing many more podcasts on different subjects such as mindfulness, designing an extraordinary life, self-awareness, different leadership skills and styles. We'll also talk about some excerpts from the new book, The Multidimensional Self. Lastly, transformational coaching and how coaching for individuals is profoundly impactful in both personal and professional life. For more information about Sage Prosperity Partners, please visit us at www.sageprosperitypartners.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sage Prosperity Partners is an organization that focuses on the future of thought leadership, presented across an array of interactive media, which encompasses corporate strategy, curriculum, publication, and public speaking. Again, I'm Lisa Brazelton with Sage Prosperity Partners, and we're so grateful to have you with us today.